0: This is Mornings with Cindy on 980 CKNW.
1: Let's talk with Alex Batelier now, who's a Global News Senior National Online Journalist and the piece uh, written this week about what's going on with Pierre Polyev's videos. Alex, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Okay, so what did we find out here? What has been going on with these videos?
2: So basically, um, we found out that for about four and a half years, Pierre Polyev's YouTube videos have included a hidden tag that is linked to an online misogynistic sort of subculture. Um, now, the tag itself was hidden from viewers. So if you were just watching a video, you wouldn't notice it. But it was embedded in the video to sort of direct YouTube as to who might be interested in um, Mr. Polyev's message um, and to you know, promote his videos among that crowd. Um, so the explanation that we've got from, from Mr. Polyev and the conservatives is, um, you know, this was first uploaded in early 2018, it was automated. So it would be uploaded to every video, you know, so it's not like they were going in manually every video and, and, and including the tag. Um, but it's been there on everything from his, you know, tribute to the queen to, you know, Stephen Harper's endorsement of him during the leadership to, you know, the, the hundreds of policy videos that he's put out over the, the last number of years that reach a, a fairly substantial audience. You know, we're talking about, you know, a right. quarter million people here subscribed to his channel, and then many more would have, would have seen the videos as well. So m- basically, the tag was used to, you know, promote his videos and sort of draw in that audience.
1: Okay, so originally, though, somebody would have had to put that tag there, right?
2: Absolutely. And after we approached the Conservatives with our findings on this investigation on Tuesday, um, they went in and and scrubbed the tag from all the videos and launched an internal probe into who was responsible for this. Now, keep in mind, this happened in early 2018 when Polyev was an opposition MP. So there only would have been a handful of people uh, working with him on uh, on his digital communications. So, you know, presumably it wouldn't be that hard to figure out who did it. But just after, you know, a day and a half of basically... Looking, um, the conservatives came back to us last night and said they're calling off the probe um, and that it would be impossible to know, you know, basically who who did this. But they did say, you know, they have, um, you know, confirmed that no staff that are still working for him were behind it.
1: Okay, so is there going to be, Alex, do you think more to come on this? You mentioned an investigation. Do they want to get to the bottom of this?
2: Well, it doesn't appear that the Conservatives do, because they've, you know, again, after a day and a half of asking questions, they've essentially given up according to what they told us yesterday. Um, is there more to come on this? It, certainly. I mean, you know, I'm still working on these files. I'm sure a lot of our colleagues are uh, working on similar uh, issues. Um, and I think there's going to be continued political pressure on Polyev to, you know, come up with a, a, an explanation. Um, you know, you, you saw the, the Liberals yesterday you know, just hammering the new conservative leader over and over and over, demanding an apology. You know, Mr. Polyev would not apologize. He said, you know, as soon as he found out about it, he took action to remedy it. Um, but I'm not sure that his political opponents or quite frankly, you know, those of us in the media are going to be satisfied with that, uh, with that response.
1: Right. So if, to explain to people, Alex, then what do we know about this tag and how significant it was?
2: So this tag is is uh, the acronym is MGTOW, which stands for Men Going Their Own Way. It's a anti feminist, misogynistic online movement that basically advocates for men to completely cut themselves off um, from women, not just romantically, um, but in all facets of their lives. Um, you know, it's it, it, it's hard to quantify how big this movement is. Uh, you know, it's 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 difficult to tell you know, exactly how much of a real-world impact it has rather than just being, you know, men being upset online. Um, But uh, at the same time, over the last number of years, we've seen, you know, these types of movements and this type of space online expand pretty dramatically. And, you know, some of the more extremist elements of, of, you know, misogynistic online movements um, have been linked to real-world violence. Think of the van attack in Toronto in 2018, um, there was a, a, a recent stabbing at a uh, North York spa linked to the involuntary celibate movement, the incel movement. So, you know, there are real world consequences, and Canadian, you know, security intelligence agencies have increasingly viewed this as, you know, a, a considerable national security threat.
1: Right. And so, how was it that this was discovered? This was, I understand, um, from the work that you did, it was like publicly available information. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it, publicly available, but a little bit difficult to find, right? So there are free tools online that allow you to uh, basically, you know, put the URL of a, of a YouTube video into a search bar and it pulls all of, the, all of these hidden tags out so you can see how people are marketing their videos. Um, and then you can also go into the actual source code of the YouTube, you know, website, um, and those are visible there too. But you'd really have to be looking for it. You, it, it wouldn't be obvious to any casual viewer um, whether they like Mr. Polyev or not, that he was using these tags.
1: Right. So you're the one who broke this story that has turned into this huge national story than Alex. So how like how how long did it take for you to dig up this information?
2: I worked on this for about a week.
1: Well, that's pretty good. That's, that's, that's pretty good there.
2: So, well, thank you.
1: <laughs> uh, to find that out so quickly then. So what are the next steps here? I've, I've, like, I, When you talked about this, when I read about this, I thought I had never heard of this before. It seems to me that you would have to know what it is. You couldn't just have accidentally put this tag on there.
2: Yeah, there's no gray area on this tag. It's not like some of the other um, sort of far right um, fringe sort of organizations where, you know, you can right. play it off as a joke or, you know, as ironic or, you know, you know, just people being overly sensitive. This is, you know, very, very much cut and dry what this movement is. Um, so there's no sort of wiggle room to say, well, you know, there's mainstream elements of this and, you know, we, we, we welcome, you know, welcome them into our party and our movement. Um, you know, basically saw from Mr. Polyev, Immediately um, after he was questioned on in the House, you know, very sort of forcefully denouncing the movement and all forms of misogyny. So he knew that there was no wiggle room there.
1: You know, that's been it's been an interesting couple of weeks, I would imagine, for Pierre Polyev too, because of the the threats that happened against his wife, too, from people who had been previously known to be supporters of him. Like there's a whole other world here that perhaps even his office is learning about.
2: Yeah, and I think that the Canadian public is learning about it too, right? Like, I've covered national security for almost 10 years now, and, you know, we started sort of cluing into the growth in this movement around 2016, you know, with the election of Donald Trump and the Proud Boys and, you know, all of these sort of movements that had existed online but had minimal sort of real world impact. Um, That's changed completely, and, and that's borne out by public reporting by, you know, CSIS in um, the RCMP talking about the threats of ideologically motivated violent extremism and how you know CSIS now devotes almost as much resources to domestic extremism as they do um, you know religiously motivated extremism from abroad. So you know I think, I think that there's a growing awareness of, of what these things are as unpleasant as they are. Um, I think it's it's important for people to know that, It's not just, you know, harmless online uh, activity. It's it's real world real world organizing and, and has real world effects.
1: It's very true. Alex, thank you so much for that story.
2: Anytime. This is Mornings with
0: Simi.
1: Well it took six ballots, more than people were expecting, but Danielle Smith is the new leader of the United Conservative Party in Alberta and the new premier designate in that province. Let's break it all down now with the help of Dwayne Bratt, the political science professor at Mount Royal University. Thanks for being with us this morning. Good morning. Were you surprised by how many ballots it took?
3: Uh, I had said um, it, just before the, uh, the voting uh, began, or at least started counting, I said we had to look at what Smith got on the, uh, the first ballot. And if she got above 45, um, she was easily going to win. Uh, if she got below 40, um, she wasn't going to win. And if she was in the low 40s, we were going to be there all night. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. It, it, to the it is.
1: What do you think went into, the, went into that? What are the factors there?
3: Well, I think there, there's several. One, of course, is the, is the preferential ballot, right? So once you start dropping people off, the lowest people might have only had 1% support or 2% support. So it, it takes a while. Um, the, the other is that voter turnout was about 68%. Uh, of those that uh, bought memberships, and uh, I, I think that is what led. And, and finally, I think ultimately, this, is a, this is, remains a divided party. Despite the name United Conservative Party, um, it remains quite, quite divided. And I think Smith tried to take steps last night to unite people, said, you know, the slate is clean, said positive things about all of her leadership rivals, Um, but she has a really radical agenda that she wants to get done very quickly, much more radical than even under Jason Kenney.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about what that means for other provinces, particularly here in BC. We're right next door. I mean, we're the ones getting the ads from Alberta telling people to come and live and work there. Yeah. What what does this mean for us here in BC, do you think?
3: Well, there was a lot of outreach to other provinces, uh, but there wasn't to the federal government. And so she, frequently referred to the Not Notley-Singh-Trudeau alliance. So I think she wants to work with other provinces as long as those provinces act in the way that benefits Alberta. Um, so this, this Sovereignty Act basically allows Alberta to um, nullify federal legislation, uh, federal court rulings, uh, federal regulatory decisions based on a vote of the provincial legislature. Uh, yet, I don't think she wants to see other provinces adopt that, that same model. Uh, so I think those are some of the issues that are at play here uh, regarding uh, B.C.
1: You talked about this not being a united uh, party. Do you think that will cause problems? It certainly did for Jason Kenney.
3: Well, that's that's the challenge. I mean, that's the reason that we're here, is that he was forced out by his own party. And ironically, you know, he received just less than 52 percent support in May and resigned and Daniel Smith got the support of less than fifty four percent of voting members last night. Now, obviously the formats are different, and the structure and the history and traditions are, are different but i 've just found that those numbers were just so close to one another that it was it was remarkable. The test is going to be with her new cabinet. Uh, do we see some of these leadership rivals uh, sit in her new cabinet um, do Does her sovereignty act pass? Um, Many of the leadership rivals uh, actually held a press conference criticizing it by calling it unconstitutional and said it wouldn't pass the legislature. So that will be a test of party unity. What does the cabinet look like? How much new blood is in there? Because many of Smith's supporters were backbench MLAs. The man that she beat on the final ballot, Travis Taves, had the support of most of cabinet. Um, So those are the two things I'm looking
1: for. All right, and we will be watching. Dwayne, thank you.
3: All right, you're welcome. This is Mornings with Simmy.
1: Well, let's talk about mortgage brokers in this province, the rules that, gra- that govern them, and why they are going to be changing. This bill was introduced in the legislature this week by Finance Minister Selena Robinson, who joins us now to talk more about it. Thank you for being here.
4: Thank you for having me, Simmy. Now, why
1: is this happening? Why are we um, updating the Mortgage Brokers Act?
4: Well, well, first of all, we want to make sure that B.C. has effective consumer protection legislation around this, as well as Uh, let's be clear. We need protections against money laundering. Um, and so we've modernized the act. Uh, we, I don't think people need to be reminded about, um, you know, the fact that our government had to act because a previous government, the BC Liberal government failed to stop money laundering, um, in various sectors. So we've seen the reports that come out of the, the Cullen Commission. Um, and so this is a response to that to, to the, that um, um, ignoring of what was happening in, in our, in our uh, real estate system. Okay, so what
1: were some of the concerns then? What was happening?
4: So what we were seeing was that um, money was, was, there was no tra- not enough transparency in, in, in transactions. Um, and so we were seeing that uh, and expressing the expression of concern that money was um, was being used through mortgage services. Um, to to launder launder um, illegally gotten money and so what we're doing now with this uh, by updating this act is we're making sure that there's more transparency um, we're making sure that uh, there's a licensing of mortgage uh, those who are in the mortgage business uh, we've certainly heard from the Cullen Commission that one of their recommendations to combat money laundering was to give the BC Finance Services Authority some rulemaking powers over the conduct of the mortgage services industry so that as well uh, with more more eyes on the activities. Um, is, is part of what's um, happening in this legislation.
1: Okay, so was there no licensing for mortgage brokers before? So just anybody could have become a mortgage broker to give that financial advice to people?
4: Well, well you, you could be registered, but that did not have um, some of the rulemaking power. The BC Finance Services Authority uh, wasn't around to oversee that. Uh, there was no rulemaking ability to adjust to a changing landscape. Um, so the new legis- legislation um, introduces... Um, you know, a combination of penalties and licensing requirements that's similar to the real estate um, framework that we have. So it's more in line, uh, not just with, with uh, the real estate um, activities, but also we've looked across nationally, and so we've updated this piece of legislation as uh, well so okay. that it, it fits with every other province as well.
1: So then what were the penalties for? What were some of the concerns that were
4: happening? Well, it, there just wasn't a licensing framework in the old, in the old act. Um, and so, and there were there were they weren't tied to the BC Finance Services Authority, which is um, um, a, a a crown that is separate from government that oversees the financial sector that exists here in the province and allowing them to work with mortgage um, mortgage brokers. so now there's going to be this ability to work with mortgage brokers who I have to say are pleased about this legislation. It allows them, to um, address some of the concerns that they had as well, in terms of making sure that um, those who are in the business had the proper licensing, had the proper information, um, were being transparent, and could fall under this rulemaking body, making sure, really making sure that it has um, the professionalism that it needs. Again, we're talking about mortgage brokers who are dealing with you know hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, and we want to make sure that it works, that it protects consumers and that it's not participating in uh, illegally gotten gains through a money money laundering scheme. So by professionalizing the industry, this is good for everybody.
1: So how soon then will this come into effect? And if you're a mortgage broker right now, then what does that change for you?
4: Well, it doesn't change anything immediately. We're going to bring in the legislation because it it creates a framework. We're going to be going out and consulting with mortgage brokers um, to make sure that um, everyone understands what the rules are. BC Finance Services Authority um, will has a, a fair bit of work to do. So it's not until 2023, towards uh, the end of 2023, that we'll actually see this all come to fruition, because uh, there's still a lot of work to do. So the legislation is the first piece. Then there's some um, more more consultation that needs to happen to make sure that it gets operationalized really well. That we educate everybody about this new system and getting systems in place, um, and then um, it'll be brought in through regulation.
1: Were there also concerns given how much it seems like things are changing in the housing market right now with mortgages, the way interest rates are going up? Were there concerns about how that would also impact people?
4: Not not specifically. This is really about how mortgage brokers. Um, operate, um, making sure that they are transparent, making sure that there's consumer protections, uh, making sure that there's a framework for reporting out, um, and making sure that everyone is, is operating um, uh, um, in as full compliance with these new rules as possible. Um, and that's really about making sure that we, um, we can Uh, address any money laundering that can be happening that will become apparent when that's the case because again I want to remind your listeners that you know there were you know a dozen years or so where um, there was there were blind eyes turned to what was happening in
1: um, well but to be fair you've also had five years to fix this too
4: oh for sure we've had five years and we've and in 2018 we, we started doing this work to address Money laundering and acting on the Coleman Commission. Um, but there were the previous government turned a blind eye to it. We were very, very well aware of it and have been working diligently um, using the, the tools at our disposal to address it. So while the Mortgage Broker Act, the original one, was, um, was um, crafted in, in 1972 and there have been some upgrades over time, it needed a full overhaul and we started that work back in 20 i want to say 28 2019 i think is when it started because it does take a fair bit of time to create a brand new act and modernize it so this work has been undertaken for a number of years and it's uh, and it's on the floor now for for discussion and debate all
1: right well thank you very much for your time
4: okay thank you very much have a great day
0: this is mornings with simi
1: We are going to now talk about disaster relief programs. When the worst happens, when bad weather hits, when the flooding happens, when wildfires happen, we hope and we wish that the governments would step in and help us out with that. And that is usually what we see. Provincial government definitely has been trying to step in when it came to what happened with wildfires and flooding in the past year. But how effective are those programs? Well, our ombudsperson here in BC is investigating exactly that and joins us now to talk more about it. Jay Chalk is with us today. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Sami. So what made you decide to look into this?
5: Well, as you know, last year was uh, really kind of an amazing year for uh, extreme weather events in British Columbia with wildfires and the heat dome and flooding. And all the experts say that those extreme events are going to be uh, coming more and more often uh, uh, given climate change. So we thought we, it was appropriate to, to take a broad look at uh, British Columbia's disaster uh, financial uh, support programs uh, uh, that are in place to help people when uh, uh, when there are these extreme weather events. So um, really it's a sis- broad systemic investigation that we're doing to uh, look and make sure that uh, that people are being treated fairly and reasonably in the context of uh, uh, of an emergency and the support government can give okay
1: I like this because quite often you know we get the announcements we hear that you know they're pretty quick to announce that they're going to do something but the follow-up is often difficult to do to go back and find out if people actually got the help so what are you going to be looking at exactly how do you how do you figure this out
5: so there are two provincial programs known as emergency support services and that and ESS is really for that short term, uh, getting people lodging, uh, food uh, uh, while they're displaced, say from their homes, uh, and uh, and so was that was that service delivered in a timely way? Did people know about it? Uh, did, they, did the support they get meet their needs uh, and, uh, and was it responsive? And if they were turned down for any particular support, uh, did they get an explanation why and an opportunity for a review? Uh, then there is a longer term program uh, called disaster financial assistance that really goes to sort of the larger or longer term effects of, uh, of uh, an emergency and a displacement uh, such as a repairing a building. Uh, and uh, so similar sorts of questions. Uh, uh, did people know about the uh, process for that program? There's an application. How did that application process work? Did they get a timely response? Uh, and, uh, and was it fair? So we're looking at those two specific programs and how they took place in the context of those emergencies from last year. But we really need to hear from people uh, about what their real world experience was. Uh, and um, so yesterday uh, we announced that we've um, opened up a questionnaire from now through December 31st for people to uh, uh, answer about 25 questions that we have about their experience with those two programs.
1: Okay, because that's important, right? Because it, what do you hope the government takes out of this?
5: Well, at the same time as our questionnaire is open, open, uh, we are... Uh, conducting an investigation, as we always do, going through government records, speaking to public servants about the program and the challenges they see. Uh, and uh, and hopefully we will have uh, in the spring a, a report that combines both that real-world experience that we hear from people uh, as well as uh, uh, the more uh, uh, perhaps normal parts of our investigation, which involves those uh, records review and uh, present a report to the legislature about how uh, these programs can be improved because uh, climate scientists are telling us that uh, these events are going to come more often and governments need to do two things, mitigate uh, the effects of climate change, but also adapt. And adaptation isn't just physical infrastructure, that's important, obviously, but it's also uh, the government programs that exist. Uh, to support people and uh, that's uh, these two programs are part of that fabric.
1: so would you see the key here would be like cu- making sure that there's not so much bureaucracy or so much red tape that if someone it's a very simple thing it seems like that if someone needs help they get it but quite often there can be obstacles, can't there
5: there absolutely and and uh, but it also goes to the context of how long people are displaced and um, as you know, there are people who are still, Uh, not back in their homes uh, uh, from those events. Uh, uh, We all know, of course, of the the tragic case of Lytton uh, and what happened in that community. Um, But, uh, for example, yesterday uh, I heard the mayor of Princeton say he still has residents uh, in his community who have not yet been able to return to their homes. So uh, what about the longer-term displacement and how, uh, uh, how are people being supported in those contexts? Obviously, Uh, staying in a hotel for a week uh, is one thing, but um, uh, for a year is an entirely different thing. And so are the programs designed for the types of impacts that we might see in the future?
1: Okay, so unfortunately, I don't think you're going to have any shortage of people who will be able to fill out your questionnaire. So how can they find it? What should they do?
5: Hey, that's not, unfor- that's not unfortunate. That's great. Well, that's I was, point.
1: I was thinking <laughs> that it's too bad they've gone through this to have to fill out yes. this questionnaire. Right? Too bad
5: they've gone through it, but great, great uh, for them. Uh, it would be great for them if they uh, if they would respond to our uh, our, our questionnaire. Um, so they can do so on our website uh, bcombitsperson.ca, uh, or they can call us one eight hundred. Five six seven three two four seven, and we'll take their responses uh, over the phone either way. And uh, the survey is open until December thirty first. Well, that
1: sounds like important work to me. Uh, thank you so much for joining us.
5: Great, thanks, Simi. Have Appreciate a
1: great day. That. You too.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: We have Bonnie Stern with us today, and she has a new cookbook out called "Don't Worry, Just Cook." Bonnie, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Simi. It's a pleasure. Yeah, nice to have you here. Now, I seem to remember that you, you said you weren't sure if you had another cookbook in you, and then
0: this one came along. What happened? Well, my daughter, who is just so incredibly bright at everything, said that she would help me write it. And I kept trying to think of, um, of some kind of theme or topic that I feel comfortable with. And um, when she came along and offered to help, we started to think about it and telling people not to worry when they cook turned out to be a very good thing because everybody seems to be worried about what they're cooking (laughs) and whether things are perfect enough and all kinds of things like that.
1: Right. Because you've always always told people that even in your cooking schools, didn't you? It is a don't worry, just do this, just cook.
0: Well, that's how the title came out. You know, my, Anna, my co-author, Anna Rupert, she wanted a title right away. And I kept saying, well, it'll come out as we write. And she said, no, I need a direction to go in. What is something that you always say to people? And I say, I always say, don't worry. Don't worry. And the funny thing is, is when we came up with "Don't worry, just cook." When we looked through the recipes, when we started to edit them, there were so many "don't worries" in them that we had to take some of them out, <laughs> or it would have looked staged. So, what would you say
1: is the theme here? Because I've been reading through this and marking pages, of course, as I always do. Um, and, and is it a new direction here for you, or are these recipes that you make all the time?
0: These are recipes. That we make all the time. And it's funny because some people say, well, what's your favorite recipe in the book? And I go, well, there's 125 recipes in the book, and they're all my favorite, because they all mean something to us. And there's a story with every recipe to say how it came to be, who it's from, or how it was developed. And they're all really close to me.
1: Right. And there's a lot of food, you know, obviously you keep up on food trends, what people are eating. I noticed there's a couple of sheet pan recipes in here and you were saying that you love that trend too. Like uh, me too. That's a great, that's a great way to cook.
0: It's like a one pot dinner, except it's in the oven. So it's even less to clean up. So what
1: flavors would you say are, are really running through this book?
0: Well, I think the flavors are the fresh flavors. You know, the flavors of things that are in season, the flavors of fresh vegetables, fresh fruits, fresh herbs, fresh, um, fresh, everything that you can put into it, because I I think that that really makes a difference in cooking. You know, if you're using and I'm not saying that you can't, but if you're using bottled (laughs) lemon juice as opposed to fresh lemon juice, I think it makes a difference in the final taste. And all those little things do add up. You can't always do them, but when you can, fresh is usually better.
1: Are you always learning, Bonnie? Is there always something, some new taste, some new thing that you want to explore?
0: Well, that's the thing about food. There is always something new to learn. Even if it isn't a new trend like on TikTok or something like that, when you travel, when you talk to people from different countries, there's always something that you don't know and always a trick or a tip or a recipe or an ingredient or something. It is just one of those fields that there's always something to learn.
1: I know that food talk has become huge, right? People used to be afraid that this generation wouldn't know how to cook, but clearly that is not the case because of TikTok. Is that something that even you embrace? Do you embrace that aspect <laughs> of social media?
0: Well, my daughter does, and some of our videos are on TikTok and very popular.
1: Well, there you go, right? Uh, now, yeah, of course, this weekend, like, everybody, I think a lot of us are going to be worrying about our turkey. Now, of course. What is, how do you, what does Bonnie Stern do to make the perfect turkey?
0: Well, what I love is a spatchcock turkey, and a spatchcock Ah. turkey, I've been making it for many, many years, and it's a turkey that, and I I can do it myself, but I think it's much easier if the butcher does it for you, takes out the backbone and then spreads the turkey out, flattens it, so it's a flat turkey, and some people like to use their, and I understand this, uh, the turkey as a centerpiece for the meal, Yes. um, this batchcock turkey is so easy to cook and you put it on top of your stuffing or dressing, like just spread it on a sheet pan, put the turkey on top with the, um, with the skin side up, put a little kind of glaze or olive oil or butter on the top. And then you roast it and it only takes an hour and a half, even for a 16, 18 pound turkey. What? At the most two hours. I know because it's flat and the stuffing isn't inside. So it's always done really well. I would encourage people to have a meat thermometer. You know, people spend a lot of money on meat now and the price of meat is going up and turkeys and chicken and everything. And a meat thermometer comes in so handy because all you have to do is insert it into the thickest part of what you're cooking and you'll know the temperature and you won't have to guess.
1: Okay. That is amazing Like to actually do that. I, I, I'm trying to think, would it all fit on a sheet pan though? That must really take up a lot of space.
0: Well, we're talking about a, um, a 12 by 18 sheet pan. Right. Big one. It's spread out and you tuck it in a little bit. I mean, you don't pull it out, but tuck it in and it's very cute. You can look it up on uh, on social to. media or on Google and They're beautiful I think they're beautiful looking. And I think even spatchcock chickens are now being sold in a lot of supermarkets just because people love that idea because it takes cooks in half the time. That is so true. Now, okay, when it comes to the accoutrement with the Thanksgiving dinner, what are your favorite (laughs) side dishes? Well, the side dishes Side dishes are all kinds of vegetable dishes. I love to serve squash and roasted vegetables. And one of the things in the cookbook, there's lots of roasted vegetable dishes that are just beautiful, you know, that you can do also (laughs) on sheet pans. And you can do them ahead of time. And I think what people have a trouble with, too, is having everything hot at the same time. Yes. But it doesn't have to be. And you can do a lot ahead. And I think that if you roast the vegetables in the morning and even serve them at room temperature, you can serve them with a salad dressing on top or just as is. They are just perfect. They don't have to be burning hot. You know, food doesn't have to be really, really hot.
1: Are you a Brussels sprouts, yay or nay
0: person? Oh, I'm a yay. I love them. Me too. Me too. How yes. do you how do you do them for Thanksgiving? Well, for Thanksgiving, what I would probably do if I'm having not a, I'm having lots of people. I'm not having lots of people this year, but if I was, I would put them just olive oil, uh, salt, and a little bit of pepper, and then I would put a little bit of maple syrup drizzled on the top, and I would toss it all together, spread them on a sheet pan lined with um, parchment paper. I like to use, and then uh, roast them at about. 400 425 for about a half an hour until they're a little bit brown and they're so delicious and that's all you have to do if you want to you can put rosemary on or some fresh thyme and just sprigs of them laying on top when they're roasting Mm. or put in a couple of garlic cloves but even just the way I said at the beginning they're so delicious and they speak for themselves
1: now, Bonnie Stern's latest book is called "Don't Worry, Just Cook." Something else that really struck me about this book, Bonnie, is the huh? variety of different like different backgrounds and cuisines that you've got in here. I mean, you've got um, you know shakshuka, you've got a Viennese recipe, you've got right? dan dan noodles in there. So, is that the way pe- you think people are eating today? They'll just try anything.
0: Well, I think that that's true. And I've traveled a lot. And I've had a lot of um, teachers come and teach at my school when I had my school from all different countries and backgrounds. And I just love exploring all those different flavors. And I think, uh, you know, we're lucky to live in a country that has a, a great ethnic diversity. And there's a lot to learn and a lot to celebrate. And I like to lead people into that. I love
1: it. Okay, so if there's one recipe that you can recommend that we absolutely must make out of this new
0: book, what is it? Oh my goodness, this is my problem. Right? 120- <laughs> I love. Um, I would say for Thanksgiving, let's limit it to Thanksgiving. You could make the beautiful sliced cauliflower roasted on the cookie sheets, and the flowers look beautiful and pile them up on a tray, and it'll just look so different and beautiful. I did see
1: that recipe. You're right. I'm going to do that this weekend. Bonnie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Simi, very much. And it's wonderful to be here.